highly profiled entrepreneur, executive, and elite matchmaker for the last decade, but it hasn't been easy. My story of entrepreneurial success is one of staggering obstacles I've had to overcome. From not graduating high school to having no financial resources when creating my first company, to losing my sister and best friend to cystic fibrosis. I was able to overcome these struggles to launch and scale numerous companies. As a result, I've had the opportunities to work with some of the world's most inspiring people, and I wanna share them with you. This is Mind Your Business. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Feeling pretty good. Where are you at the moment? I am in Bay Roberts, Newfoundland. Oh, very cool. Yes. Where did you grow up? I grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland. You grew up in St. John's. Furthest east you can go. <laughs> so now I know about your story and yes. um, it's pretty amazing. So now you were born with cystic fibrosis, which I was. is a terminal disease. And yep. how, how old were you when they diagnosed you? Well, actually, when I was born, I was eight pounds, nine ounces. And three months after I was four pounds, four ounces. Oh, wow. So they knew something was wrong. And then, yeah, so at three months of age, I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Wow. And were your parents familiar with it at all? Not at all. Not at all. No. no. My mom told me that she went home and like cried her heart out because she had never heard of this disease before. And yeah, they were just, there was a lot of uncertainties obviously at that time, mm-hmm. 30, almost 33 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was pretty much a death sentence back then. It was. It really was. And, and really that's all the doctors could really tell my parents, you know, was that, you know, it's not a, it's not a great thing to be diagnosed with. So what year were you born? 1986. Okay. So my sister, who was also born with CF, of course, yeah. she was born in 83. And I remember, I think the life expectancy back then was like six years old or something. Yeah. Yeah. Was- yeah. I, mom told me, like, they told her, like, I would be very lucky if I seen kindergarten. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how much uh, things have changed. So yeah. how was how it growing up with that? You know, like cystic fibrosis uh, presents so many challenges, you know, like it was just, it was really tough. And like, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of my back history and my story besides my CF. So all those added things just made it that much more challenging for me. Because not only did Mm -hmm. I have to contend with having a terminal life-threatening illness that really at the time they didn't know much about, but I also had to deal with growing up in an alcoholic home and, uh, you know, certain other issues uh, that went along with that. So, And it was, it was your father who was an alcoholic? My father, yeah. He was very abusive towards myself and my mother. Not so much uh, towards my sisters, though they were affected in different ways. They were never the target of his physical, mental, and emotional abuse. You, were you the oldest? No, I was the middle. Oh, you were the middle. Same. Yeah. Yeah, I was the middle. And I think the biggest reasons why I was the target was because his father abused him. And also because I uh, absorbed so much of my mom's time and energy because I did have CF. Oh, so he had jealous. I think, yeah, I think my father was really jealous of my mom because of all the time and attention that she had to, to allocate to me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and my sisters too, like they, they went through phases where they often, you know, like picked on me and, and took their anger out towards me because I was the center of mom's world. And 
you know, they look back on it now and like they say, rightfully so, you were the center of mom's world. But at the time when you're yeah. a child, you don't really understand. No, you don't. And I, I, I mean, oh. growing up as the middle child of two CF siblings, it was to me, I mean, I was a little older when Chris was born. I was eight yeah. at that point. But when I was little and Julie was sick, I was so jealous. And I remember saying to my parents, I wish I had CF. Yeah. Because I, yeah. all I saw was she being sick kids and all these people would come and bring her gifts. So like yeah. celebrities, Celine Dion would come, yeah. like yeah. prime minister. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. all I saw was this. And we had a special snack cover because as you know, CF patients need to gain weight to yeah. have the breathing. So we had a cupboard that was just always chock full of sugary treats and fatty foods and I wasn't allowed to eat it. Yeah. No, that's Julia. She needs to gain weight. So for me as a child, it was like, well, that's not fair. Why can't I? Yeah. Have Exactly. And like, really, it's only like, it's only like when you reach adulthood that you can really understand that because when you're a yeah. child, like I said, like you don't understand why one is getting more attention. Whereas the other one isn't like, I remember like my mom used to bring me to the doctor's office and the doctor used to pay me like money to practice IVs, getting IVs put in like, wow. Yeah. Like, so I was spoiled in little ways like that. So Yeah. It was hard on them. I feel bad looking back. Like they, they must have gone through so much, especially with the uncertainty of not knowing what was going to happen with their brother. Because I did spend an awful lot of time as a child in the hospital. Oh, did you? So I'm sure it was really scary for them going yeah. through that. Wow. So when you were 10, you're, you moved out from your father? So, um, no, I was 12 when we moved. I basically wrote my mom a letter at the age of 12. And I said, basically, like, you pick dad or me, like, because it can't be both. Because wow. I had just, yeah, it was quite a powerful letter. She still has it, actually. I still meaning, I've been meaning to ask her, like, to read it. <laughs> um, but, like, that's basically what broke the camel's back, she said, when my child wrote me a letter saying that they either, you know, I had to either pick their father or them. Because I basically said, like, I was leaving. <laughs> wow. I don't know where I was going, but I was yeah. leaving. <laughs> <laughs> You're going somewhere. I was done. <laughs> wow. So you must have been, you know, really mature for your age then. I feel like everybody with CF that I talk to uh, generally I, are a lot wiser than Totally than agree. It forces um, you to grow up a lot. It does, you know. And, like, having those tender conversations about death at, like, such a young age you know, it certainly makes you realize that, you know, you're special, that life is not going to be normal for you. So it does make you, you know, grow up mm -hmm. a lot faster than, than you. I found, you know, that growing up surrounded by terminal illness, that even for me, it affected how I see life and death and my focus on death is always there. Like when I get a cold, yeah. I immediately think, oh my God, I'm going to die. And I, I think know. it's just I because know. growing up when my yeah. brain was forming, you know, yeah. Julia would get sick and it'd be like, oh my God, rush her to the hospital. She could get a chest yep. infection. She could die. And so now yep. like in my brain, it's constantly there. Like, yep. Yep. And you know, like for me, like, I mean, as you've read in my story that I sent you, I struggled a long time with my sexuality and I did unfortunately marry a woman because I thought that that's what God wanted me to do and you know it was really death staring death in the face because we lost a nephew like it was her sister's child um <laughs> so how old were you when you married her I was 20 years old and you knew you were gay yeah like I knew I knew I was gay since I was eight years old I remember like I don't have very many positive memories with my dad but the ones that I do were like doing fun stuff like going like 
skating or sliding or doing like physical activities. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that we used to always do was go swimming. And like, I remember going into the change room when we would go swimming and like, it wasn't anything sexual at that point because you're eight years old. You don't really have those Mm -hmm. desires. But I just remember being very much attracted to like the male physique, the male body. And like, whenever anybody asked me like, what is the earliest recollection that I have of being gay? That's what I always go back to. Mm-hmm. I just remember not being attracted. Like I never ever got in the pool and I would like look at women that way. Like I would always look at men that way. So when you married her, did you think maybe you were bisexual? No. Well, see, that's one of the like amazing things about Jehovah's Witnesses. Cause that's unfortunately I became a part of that religion in the middle of high school. I think the main reason for that was because at the age of 15, I was kind of on death's door, much like I was before transplant. Like I was really, really sick. I wasn't gaining any weight. I was constantly in the hospital. So like I was really longing for answers and purpose of why we're here and why I was faced with such a debilitating disease and why there's no cure. I just, Emily, like I had so many questions that weren't being answered. And I didn't really care where I got the answers from. Just I needed something to like soothe my soul. Yeah. Because I was like, I was really in a hard place. And I remember doing a project in religion class. You basically had to pick a religion and prove whether or not they were a cult. And that's kind of what got me involved with Jehovah's Witnesses. So anyway, make a long story short, I ended up like devoting my life to that religion. Wow. And that. Yeah. And that religion doesn't agree with homosexuality. Like they think that homosexuals are basically like the the scum of the earth. What? So they, yeah. Wow. So they have no toleration for homosexuality at all. So you can't be in the religion if you're gay? You can't be in the religion if you're gay. And like, I remember learning that and I had already invested so much time and energy into it that like, I really like, I was at a crossroads because I was like, okay, like, am I gay or is this something that I can like work with God to like fix? Yeah. And like, you're talking like, I know that we're not totally where we need to be when it comes to gay rights and stuff, but that was like 12 years ago. Wow. So like things are a lot more advanced now than they were then. So, I mean, I just felt like, okay, well maybe this is something that I can work on. And I remember going to the elders of the church and they literally said the words, you, you know, try and pray the gay away. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like if you devote your life, like if you devote your heart to God, like maybe he will like somehow. So like, I really gave it a good effort when I met my ex-wife to like, you know, give like to try and cover it up. Did she know you were gay? No. Well, she says she didn't, <laughs> you know, like we both met and we like, and, and, and Emily to this day, like I love her. Mm-hmm. Like I can honestly say that I loved her as a human being, but I wasn't in love with her the way she needed a man to be in love with her. And ultimately like getting back to the point about being surrounded by death, it was when our nephew died that like, I started questioning everything. Like, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Why am I living this lie? So it's interesting that you mentioned like that you were surrounded by like you, you know, like you've had those epiphanies because of your story with being exposed to CF and being exposed with people dying at a young age. But for me, it was really like his death that like, I was like, okay, what, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And it took a year after that. I like, I remember walking, we were, we were uh, going around a park where we lived and I said to my ex-wife, like, I think I might be gay. Wow. 
And she like laughed it off. She was like, no, you're not gay. I was like, we watch America's Next Top Model together. <laughs> like, I don't watch hockey. Like, I don't do any like masculine things that like normal, and I don't mean to categorize because I'm not saying that like straight men can't watch America's Next Top Model, but like, I would be all about the fashion. I'd be all about like, I would just be like obsessed. So it took like, that was in May. And then at the end of that month is when I had my first suicide attempt because I just was so lost and so... <laughs> yeah, you just... Yeah, it was, um, it was just such a scary time for me that I just, um, I just had to get out. So get... when you tried to commit suicide, it, it was because you, you had realized you were gay and you just felt stuck? I felt so trapped, Emily, like being in a religion that basically is like a acceptable form of brainwashing in today's society. I literally felt like the most intense inner turmoil because here was a part of me that I knew was a good person who I knew deep down like wanted to make a positive impact on this world. And then on the other hand, I was living this lie, literally going door to door, Emily, with the Bible, telling people telling people that homosexuality was a sin. Meanwhile, in my heart, I knew that that's who God made me to be. So when you tried to kill yourself, did you, like, how did that affect your disease? And uh, Well, see, I was really lucky because it actually didn't affect my CF. I was in the hospital for two weeks. I basically swallowed, like, every pill that I had in my house. Mm-hmm. And they pumped my stomach. And that's really when my journey to self authenticity came about because I I was introduced to the most amazing psychiatrist who came in. He had never met me before, but somehow he knew what was going on. And he just sat at the end of my bed when I woke up and he was like, so are you going to tell me why you're here? And I was like, "Mm, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you're gay. And like, it was an aha moment. And Emily, I remember crying for like two hours with him straight because for the first time in my life, someone seen me for who I truly was. <laughs> and like to this day, I don't even think he realizes the impact that had on me because it was like somebody seen me for the first time. Yeah. How, how do you think he knew? Um, I think so many people who are in my like circle knew that I was gay. Like my mom was really what I would call like the only person that was somewhat surprised, but I think it's just because she was naive to that stuff at that time. Mm-hmm. But like all my cousins and my sisters and basically my whole family were like, well, duh, like we knew this like a long time ago. So it just was nice that somebody like acknowledged that this was who I was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been really, really hard to like be intimate with your wife. It was very hard. And like, I think so much of the brainwashing was allowed me to be. Yeah. Like, cause we actually were like, we had a really good love life and like, wow. you know, like it was really like, I joke in my story that I sent you, but like, I feel like I should win an Oscar for the performance that I put on <laughs> because like, I, I was like convincing myself. Like I was like, so when you know. would be with her, would you picture a man? Because I, again, I would feel that that was like sinful towards. Oh, yeah. Right? So you wouldn't even allow yourself to have the thoughts. No, no. Because I would basically feel like I would miss out on eternal life if I allowed myself. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very like, no, not doing that. I went to um, 
a Jehovah's Witness church once years ago when I lived in Australia. Yeah. My boyfriend at the time and his mom, and it was so bizarre to me. Yeah. yeah. I was there and I wasn't really paying attention. And then they were passing something around that you either had to eat or drink if yeah. you were chosen one. Yeah. But yeah. I wasn't paying attention. So I went to go take it. And they were like, no. Like my boyfriend <laughs> at the time was like, you can only do it if you're chosen uh, one. That's so, amazing. I yeah. guess like you know or something if you're the special yeah. chosen yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. And they be believe, before they I believe it. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Before I went, my boyfriend's mother had like had to to tell us all these things. Like she's like, Don't tell anyone that you live together uh yeah. because it's yeah. a sin and they will yeah. they will be really upset. Don't tell yeah. anyone this and don't tell anyone that. And I was yeah. like, Whoa, so we're going and we're pretending that we're totally somebody else. <laughs> Sounds like a very exactly. pleasant exactly. Yeah. environment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I did that for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. 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 After one night, I was like, yeah, I'm never doing that again. So no, exactly, yeah. It was just so controlling of like, you can't yeah. do this, you can't do that. You can't celebrate this. You can't celebrate that. This is a sin. That is a sin. Otherwise, yeah. you're eternal damnation and or you'll come back and live forever or something. Yeah, well, that's why like society now has identified that religion as a cult is because they do have so much control over your life. Yeah, it's it's literally mind control because you're not allowed to think for yourself. Mm -hmm. Which is like, I mean, I think I'm not religious in in any way, but I think that a lot of religions are beneficial in the sense of like they make you a better person in a lot of ways. Like Christianity and stuff is like about loving people and accepting people yeah. for the most yeah. part. But I mean, there's yeah. nothing positive about that. No, like no, meeting for who they are and finding ways to. Yeah, it's just like there's enough bad stuff in the world with them. I know. I and know. I, when I think of a religion, it's to think of something that's supposed to improve your life. and Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. especially someone young like you that went to there looking yeah. for some solace from all your suffering. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And it, yeah, it essentially wasted your life. I'll just, I'll just share a little extra story with you. I remember the day, our wedding day to my ex-wife. And like when the doors opened and I seen her, I started to cry. And everybody like who was sitting in the audience was like so moved because they thought it was because like here I was seeing my be the beautiful bride for the first time. Yeah. But I was actually crying because I was dying inside and I was actually oh like, my Oh my God, like I'm actually going to do this. Wow. When you were 10, you were saying yeah. that something really traumatic happened. Yeah. So when I was 10 years old, I was actually, um, at a family barbecue where my mother wasn't in attendance and unfortunately my uncle uh raped me oh my god um, yeah so it was so, your uncle yeah it was my uncle on my dad's side so like what how did that happen i actually like i don't know like i i remember working with my psychiatrist to like try and help me bring back a lot of the memories but mm -hmm. i think because i was so young that like i kind of went into survival mode and i tried to block a lot of it out yeah. all i can remember is that we were at a barbecue and my two sisters weren't there i don't even know where they were so it was just me and another one of my cousins but then there was like my dad and like three or four of his brothers there who were drinking. And I remember saying, going like at, at the uncle's house that I was at, who wasn't the uncle that raped me. I remember saying like, I'm going to go inside or something and go downstairs. Cause they had this like games room downstairs where they had mm -hmm. like a lot of toys and stuff. And anyway, 
I had never ever had any like previous like signs or anything from this man that would give me any indication that I wouldn't be safe alone with him. But Emily, like when he walked down the stairs, I knew like right away what was going to happen. Like I remember that feeling of being terrified, knowing what was about to come. I remember like the smell of the damp concrete that was in the basement. I remember the smell being mixed with laundry detergent because that's where the laundry room was. And I just remember being so terrified as he like pinned me to the ground and like took my innocence away that I'll never ever get back. And yeah, I just, I kept it a secret until I came out because he threatened me. He said like, first of all, if you tell anybody, no one's ever going to believe you. (laughs) And I think he knew the special relationship that I had with my mom because he said that if I was to ever tell anybody that he would kill my mother. (laughs) So like right away, I just knew like that it was going to be something that I would have to take to the grave. And have you ever seen him since then? I haven't seen him since. No, he moved away. Thank goodness. Yeah. And like, I'm not close to my dad's side at all. So like, I haven't had to see him since, but it was something that I was like, I was so ashamed of. And I just like, I remember being a child, like I mentioned in the letter that I sent you, like I tried to cover everything up for him. Like there was blood all over my underwear. Oh my God. I remember putting it in a Sobeys bag and like putting it in the garbage so that my mom wouldn't see it or question me like why this was happening. I just remember being like so protective of him because I, I had so much fear of like losing the only person who I felt really close with and that was my mom. So I like, I buried that so deep in my soul that it wasn't until my suicide attempt that I came, like I came clean about everything. Like I told my family about what had happened because I just didn't want to live in fear anymore. I didn't want to live in fear of being a disappointment to God. I didn't want to live in fear of being a disappointment to people that belong to a religion. I didn't want to be a disappointment to anybody or a failure to anybody anymore. I just wanted everything to be out in the open. Yeah. So that's why I decided for the first time, it took me 25 years. I was 25 when I told people what had happened. And have you ever thought about confronting him? Everybody asks me that. I think... You know, just because I'm not a Jehovah's Witness anymore, I still have a lot of faith. I still do believe in God. Mm-hmm. And probably the biggest thing, Emily, that I believe in is karma. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like it would only cause me more upset and more pain to have to go and like see him again and like relive that whole experience. Yes. Than to just let life work itself out. Because really, if I confront him, it's not going to change anything. Um, you know, I believe that he's a, an asshole and I think that he's, he is the way he is. And I just think that nothing's going to change that. Did he have children of his own? He did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I and sadly, sadly, another one of my cousins came forward and told me that they had a similar experience with him. Wow. Yeah. So I was glad that I came out about that at that point because I, I'm glad that I can be there for that person. It's, it's really, it's amazing that you did have the, you know, the strength to come out even all those years later, because there's so many people that just live with that trauma for the rest of their life. Oh, there are. Yeah. And they just, they suffer in silence. Exactly. What would, what would you say to someone like that? That's just suffering. I would say, oh my God, I'm trying to get emotional here now. I would just say that, um, there's so much freedom that comes with owning your truth and letting the world in on it because mm-hmm. it, it frees you as a person, yeah. you know, you're not, you're no longer 
you know, we'll get in to talk about my opiate addiction now in a minute, but like living in fear and living with a victim mentality really traps you. It really doesn't do yes. anything for an individual. It doesn't allow you to thrive. It doesn't allow you to become who you're meant to be. It just, it, it literally makes you feel trapped. So I would just tell anybody who's listening to this who may have experienced sexual abuse as a child to like, to just tell your truth and don't, yes. you know, I had so much shame, Emily, because I, I blamed myself for everything. I felt it was my fault. I felt like maybe I was a target. I felt so much shame. I felt like if I had told anybody, it would have brought a lot of shame onto my family, especially my mom. Wow. So that's really why I buried it. And I really felt that I would take it to the grave. But thank God I got the strength up to, uh, to you know, tell it, what had happened. Absolutely. And it... I feel like your story can help so many people. Yeah. Because it and is... that's really why I'm, um, that's really why I'm speaking out about all the things that have gone on in my life because I just want, if nothing else, I just want people to be empowered by it, to realize that you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances. And that even if you were dealt a really bad hand in life, you can still thrive. Mm -hmm. that's really the message that I want to to give from my life experience absolutely I mean it's funny to hear what some people complain about and then you it see <laughs> other people's reality you know it it's is. like there is actual real <laughs> traumas out there and I know, problems I know I know other than like not having time to get a coffee before work <laughs> exactly exactly yeah, You know, and yeah. it's funny, like, because I speak at different women's events and stuff like that, and I'll meet with people afterwards, and they'll say things like, um, oh, I can't, I can't go after my dreams because of this, or I can't do, yeah. you know, live my passions because of this. And it's like, we all have obstacles, and some yeah. of us have far more things to get through and get over than others, but we can still yeah. make a way. There's always a, a way to get there. Like you, you you've yeah. gone through exactly. all of this. Now you've written a book that's going to be coming out next year. You've just written this yeah. beautiful article for the Huffington Post. You've gone yeah. on to survive and thrive. Yeah, and yeah. Such a bright yeah. future. And it's like, yeah. It's, it's but really, it wasn't until that I grabbed life. You know, it's, uh, it's really when I owned life that I was able to, to be my authentic self and thrive. So. And so what happened with the, how did you become addicted to opioids? Okay, so 2017 is when I had my double lung transplant, but in 2015 is when my health really deteriorated and I started mm -hmm. having a lot of pain in my lungs. The lungs themselves don't actually feel pain, so I've been told, but like the lining that was around my lungs became inflamed. I got a lot of mucus plugs. I was oh, like gosh. in chronic pain. So at that point, like the pain was very real and the doctors, like they needed to do something to help me because I was just in constant agony. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the only thing that gave me any kind of physical relief was hydromorphone. My sister and, was on that as well. Yeah. I remember like taking it for like the very first few weeks and just feeling so much relief. Oh. It helped me breathe better. It helped me sleep better. It helped me not be in, like I was like, I started getting energy back because I wasn't using all my energy with being in pain. But like I talk a lot about in the story that I wrote for the Huffington Post was that I also noticed that it numbed all the emotional and mental pain that I was experiencing. Wow. So even though I went through therapy after my first suicide attempt, I don't really feel like I truly dealt with all my garbage until 
after my lung transplant, when I hit my second rock bottom and went through my second suicide attempt that I really faced the realities of my life and did a lot of reading on like victim mentality and falling into the victim trap. And like the opioids just gave me a way out. Yeah, It just numbed everything that I was able to get through my days. I was like, I was really scared going into transplants. I was way more scared than I ever, ever, ever let on. Oh, really? What were you just afraid of death? I don't think I was afraid of death. I think I was afraid of like leaving my, I was afraid of like everybody who I love with my whole heart being alive without me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't actually dying that I was afraid of because I'm not afraid and I never, I don't think I ever will be afraid to die. But it was just like, I didn't want everybody to fall apart and I like, I don't want to make myself full of myself, but I was just, I was like petrified. I was like, how's my mom going to survive with like her only son gone? How is my sister's going to cope losing? Like I just, it was just really overwhelming. So the opioids, you know, they just numbed everything. And so leading into transplant when the pain was getting worse um, I hung on to the opioids after my transplant. Obviously, you need narcotics. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs narcotics after transplants. There's no way of not needing, like I say in my story, like you're getting your chest ripped open and new lungs put in. There's no way you're not going to need heavy, do- heavy doses of pain yeah. medication. But like it just became a reliance for me because it kept everything numb because hmm. I didn't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I just figured that as long as I kept doing taking these pain meds that I wouldn't have to deal with my crap, that it would just keep me, you know, afloat basically. So then after, so after my transplant, I was like a year out and I was going through my second divorce from my then husband. And I just was feeling very suicidal again. Um, And I should mention too, that narcotics can do that. They can actually put you into the deepest depression of your life. Oh, wow. And like I was suicidal. And so what I did was I stopped taking my anti-rejection medication. Oh, my God. So that's what was keeping me alive. Yeah. If you don't take your anti-rejection meds, your lungs can 100% guaranteed go into rejection. So I made my plan known to my family and my friends. And even though like the police and the doctors didn't look at it as an active suicide attempt because I wasn't like doing anything like in that moment, they couldn't force me to take my medication. Wow. So what they did is they brought me to the mental hospital here in Newfoundland and I was admitted and it took me like a good two weeks before I agreed to start taking my medication again. Wow. This was in July and August. And then I got out of hospital and I was What year was that? This was just last year. Last year, yeah. Yeah, this was just last year. And then, so I got out of hospital and I went into rejection. Oh my God. Yeah, I remember the day that I was brought to the hospital. I could not breathe. I had a fever. I was really, really disoriented, delusional. I remember my mom and her boyfriend picking me up to bring me to the hospital. After that, I don't remember anything because they put me on a BiPAP machine because my my CO2 levels were ridiculously high in my blood. And then that night I slipped into a coma. And the doctors called my mom and told her that I wasn't going to make it through the night. 
they said to call any family members who live away to come say their goodbyes because Jamie's not going to make it through this. And I was in a coma for a total of two weeks. Wow. Before I woke up. And how did they get you out of that? Well, they, upon discovering, they did a lot of like figuring out what was going on because at the first time it wasn't clear that I was in rejection because like I didn't, I wasn't taking my medication in July and August for like a two week period or maybe like almost three weeks. But then I didn't, this didn't happen until like the end of October. So they were questioning like, okay, is this rejection? Because if he was to go into rejection, normally it would happen like around the same time. Uh, so like what's going on? But apparently the gap in medication can have an extended time before it presents itself. So when they looked at my lungs, they were treating me for infection, which I did have also two infections on top of the rejection. So they were treating me for the infection. And then finally, when they were discussing things with Toronto, Toronto said like, well, the only thing left to do is like, pop them full of steroids and see if he's in rejection because it's really hard for them to do that from away because they can't be there to assess Mm -hmm. me like they would if I was there and then miraculously uh, Emily I started getting better like I started my vital signs were coming around my liver and kidney functions were improving my body was basically getting better so wow I was very lucky very very lucky so now how are you today like so today, uh, next month, I will be nine months free of narcotics. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Congratulations. I, uh, thank you very much. Shortly after I got out of the hospital and I was living with my mom, I remember having this aha moment where I was looking in the mirror in the bathroom and I was seeing myself. I was like 109 pounds. I was really, really still unwell. And I just, I just remember associating with how I was feeling with the medication that I was taking. Yeah, And I just remember saying to myself, like, I don't want this anymore. Like, I don't want to cover this up anymore. I just want to be myself. I want to get my life cleaned up. I want to be, and I like, I think it was only after my rejection episode that I truly like at heart understood what my donor had given me. (laughs) And I basically said to myself, like, I cannot throw this away. So I went out in my mom's living room where I kept all my uh, narcotics. I took them all. I dumped them all down the toilet. Uh, poor fishies. I hope they weren't <laughs> Um And I just was like, I was done with that life. Yes. And I, I put myself into major withdrawal. Like I remember showing up, I had to go to emerge a couple times and they were like, they looked obviously at my drugs that I was taking. They were like, have you taken your, your hydromorphone? I was like, no, I'm giving that up. And they were like, well, you're having major withdrawal symptoms right now. Wow. So what were the withdrawal symptoms? Oh my God. I had a headache like you would not believe. I was sweaty. I was freezing. I was, it's just a very, very unpleasant feeling. Because Emily, not only was I addicted to narcotics, I was taking 12 milligrams every four hours. How much would a a normal dose be? Uh, That's enough to knock out a horse. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. Like normal people need one to two milligrams every four hours to feel the effects. Yeah. But I had gotten myself so addicted over four years that I needed like, cause you become, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you become, um, not immune, but like you, you, yes. you build up a tolerance. You, yeah. So you, re- you require more than, than normal. Mm-hmm. So like I was up to 12 milligrams every four hours. So like I would be like on the couch and mom said like, I would look like a zombie because I didn't even know if I was in the world. And like, you don't realize the damage that you're doing to other people either when you're on the narcotics, because again, you're numb. 
So you don't know how your actions are affecting other people. And so basically, like, I destroyed so many relationships that were in my life that I now have to live with knowing that I've done that. Um, and I just, like, I, I just was finished. I didn't want that life anymore. Yeah. It's and so that's that why... decided that on your own. Yeah. It's funny, but the first reaction that I uh, got that really knew that I was one of the lucky ones, and that's what I called my story that I sent to the Huffington Post was one of the lucky ones, was um, a pharmacist who had never met me before was working at the pharmacy that I went to. And she said, I was looking over your file. She said, I noticed that you're no longer taking hydromorphone. And I said, no, I said, uh, I worked with my family doctor to get myself off them. I said, like, I just got up one day and I just said, like, I'm done. I have had enough. And that she had tears in her eyes. Wow. And I was like, I just remember saying to her, like, uh, uh, is everything okay? And she just looked at me and she said, you know, she said, being in this job, it's really hard seeing people come in day after day to get their narcotics and they don't mm-hmm. realize what they're doing to themselves. Mm-hmm. So to see someone who has done put in the work to get themselves off it she said it's very inspiring mm-hmm. and like it was like a, another aha moment that I was like oh my god like this is actually because I mean I, I remember when I was on them like the doctors would give me a hard time and I basically just was like yeah you're an asshole you just don't want me like getting my pain under control and, but it wasn't that at all it was that we're living in a time now where we're in an opiate epidemic mm-hmm. And people are, thousands of people are dying every single year because they're getting themselves hooked on these harmful narcotics. And when the pharmacist said that, it was like, oh my God, you are one of the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to be a statistic. Mm-hmm. After my sister died, um, I had a lot of problems uh, just dealing with it, of course. And one of the doctors yep. prescribed me clonazepam. Yeah, yeah. So I started taking that daily and it made me feel so much better because it just yeah. kind of, yeah, it yeah. mellowed all the pain out and yeah. 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 brought all the heavy emotions down. And you a did, few yeah. months in, like when I'd have to go get the prescription, I'd have to sign for it because it was like yeah. a monitor, narcotic yeah. or whatever. And then yeah. the psychiatrist I was seeing, one day I just, uh, seven months or so after taking it daily, I was so tired all the time and I was getting back into working again and I love what I do and I was just so fed up with being exhausted. So I just stopped taking it. And then I went to yeah. see a psychiatrist a week later or something and she was like, oh, I want to talk to you because we have to make a plan about weaning you off the clonazepam. And I was like, no, I stopped. I stopped taking it. And she was like, what? Yeah. You just yeah. stopped? Yeah. <laughs> that made me tired. And then she told yeah. me how highly addictive it is and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah. okay, well, that information might have been good. I know. I, started taking I know. I know. I mean, it, it did it did get me through an impossible time, but I mean, yeah. would have been and the, for a warning. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing though, Emily, like uh, every CF patient now that I have met or that I've known who has gone through transplant leading up to transplant, like the reality is we do need narcotics. The pain is unbelievable. Like I remember having those mucus plugs and that uh, psoriasis or flora, whatever it's, it's called when you're lining of your lung inflames. Like I just remember wanting to die in that moment because the pain was just so intense. What's a mucus plug? A mucus plug is like when a mucus, it's basically like a, a bunch Ooh. of mucus gets plugged in an airway and it hardens. Oh my gosh. So then, so then the pressure from air building up behind it causes like tears in your bronchial tubes oh wow yeah so they happen like 
a lot going into transplant because obviously your lung function is really poor and your lungs aren't able to clear the mucus as well as a normal person's lungs would be. What was your lung function at at that point? uh, Going into transplant, it was 13%. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. 13%. Yeah. So with that, like he's struggling to do almost anything. Oh, well, I was bedridden. Well, I was in the hospital 550 days leading up to my surgery. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. 550 days to the day. And I was, yeah, I was pretty much lifeless. I remember Dr. Tullis, one of the most amazing physicians you will ever meet. Yes, I know Dr. Tullis. She came in my room on the Thursday before I got my call. And I could see when she walked in the room, she was really, really distraught. And she pulled up a chair next to me and it was like really late at night. It was like seven o'clock because I remember being like, what are you still doing here? But that's Dr. Tullis. Like she gives everything and then some to her CF patients. And she pulled up a chair and she said, you know, she said, myself and the transplant team were talking and and Jamie, like, we just, we just don't know if this is going to happen for you. Uh And we feel like you, you have like weeks left to live. And I remember that moment, like feeling so defeated because I was like, here, I was just punching in all this time, like in the hospital, really excited about transplant. And like, it's all going to be for nothing again, like all the fears, like for my family coming up. And then miraculously that Monday I got my call. Oh my God. So just four days after. um, And I remember, I can't, um, I can't put into words um, what I'm trying to say here, but, uh, you know, since I was a young kid with CF growing up, I've always had this strong feeling that I was put here on this earth to do something amazing. And I remember when Dr. Tallis said those words, I just remember being like, I'm not going to get to do my amazing thing that I'm supposed yeah. to, to do here. And I'm not going to get the chance to like, know what it's like to breathe because that's one of the hardest things about having a transplant is survivor's guilt because you see so many people who die waiting on the list who get lungs but they don't work out for them and it's very difficult living with survivor's guilt is something that i have to work on and check in on with myself every single day but going through the opiate thing and surviving all the things that i have in my entire life um, being bullied in high school to such an extreme extent to being raised by an alcoholic father who sent me to the hospital on several occasions to being gay and having that inner turmoil and joining a cult and living to escape that and then to go through transplant and make it through two divorces and a bankruptcy and all these things that I've had to endure. I just, I, I didn't want that to be how my story ended. Yeah. And I didn't want to leave this world with that being how this was all going to end. So I like pick up my big boy pants and I was like, nope, this is not how it's going down. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I got off the narcotics. I straightened my life out. I got rid of very toxic relationships that I was holding on to. Um, I cleared out my life of any drama, unnecessary drama or things and people that didn't have my best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. And I just really embraced life and everything that I had to offer and finished writing my book. And now my greatest passion is helping other people 
who are going through transplant and like helping them with a narcotic thing. And just like, I want to leave this world a better place than I found it. I love how open you are to sharing all of your story. I love how you, 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 I remember the first email we got from you when you contacted us at the foundation and one of the girls in the office, Ashley had who had gotten, she said, you have to read this letter. It had everything out there and she's reading it and she's getting tears in her eyes. And she's like, this is, this is crazy. Yeah. But it was just like, you're so open with it and it just helps so many people. And it's become, you know, beautiful mission, beautiful story that of triumph and overcoming so many adversities, you know? And I think just, Emily, I think I'm so open about it is because for so long I treated these things like they were something to be ashamed of or something that uh, belittled or, or didn't empower me. And now I'm looking at it like, wait, I have lived to tell about all these horrific things. <laughs> I remember I'll share with you this quick little story. I remember having a doctor come in to see me uh, in Toronto when I was uh, in the hospital waiting for a transplant. And he too was just absolutely flabbergasted by my story because of course I was seeing a psychiatrist. um, I was seeing a psychiatrist leading into transplant and like she informed him, I guess, of everything that was on my plate and everything that I had survived. And he came in my room and he said, you know, he said, I could grab 10 complete strangers off the streets of Toronto and he said, combined, they mm-hmm. would not have had to face what you have faced in your short 30 years. Exactly. And like, I remember being like, yeah, that's true. So like, give me some lungs. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember it being like, you know what? Like, that's such a good thing for me to keep in mind of that. Like, I have been through a lot and that mm-hmm. these things, rather than let them like beat me down or, you know, try and rob me of joys in life, I need to celebrate these and celebrate the fact that I've overcome all these obstacles. Yes. And you've that become I've, a beautiful person. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. Like all these things could harden a person. You know, my mom tells me all the time how glad she is that like, I'm not involved in street drugs or that I'm like, not a mean, vindictive person who goes around plotting revenge on people. Like it, it could have went so many different ways, but I think I seen the example of like my father and like other people around me as a kid that I didn't want to be like. So I use that as like, as like inspiration for me, not of how I, I wanted not to be. So that's, uh, that's really how, how I got myself out of the mess with narcotics. And I know that they, you know, you must know this. And that people have told you, but I just have to say that, you know, none of it was your fault. No. None of it no. was anything for you to feel the shame or the guilt. None of it, no. you know. It took me a really long time to get to that place because, again, like the things that you internalize, and it's not just, it's not just a one moment thing that you internalize, it's your whole life. So after something mm-hmm. like that happens to you, like, because I mean, like you take it, I was one of three kids and I was the only one of you. So it's like, okay, well, why me? Yeah. So you internalize everything. Like, what did I do wrong? What's about me that's not lovable? What's, you know, why can't I have a father like everybody else? <laughs> you know, so you just, it's, const- it's constantly internalizing what you have done wrong. So it took me a long time to get to a place where like, no, this is other, this is other people's. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's other people's things to be ashamed yeah, of. And that's not me. That's, that has nothing to do with me. I just happen to be a target, right? 
so what would be if somebody's currently going through something like that what what would be some tips to help them get through it with what in respects to what anything with an abusive situation you know or just um, unhappiness like what are some things that you did to pull yourself out of the different situations that you were in i think just ultimately realizing your self-worth yeah. realizing that you matter realizing that you know that you don't have to to put up with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess in a way, like in the back of my mind, I always justified things like, oh, well, I'm going to die from CF anyways. Oh, yeah. You know, that was something I remember always saying to myself. Oh, well, you were raped. Oh, well, you're going to die from CF anyway. Oh, you are a victim of child abuse. Oh, well, you're going to die from CF anyway. So like, it was like, I didn't give myself enough validation or like credit for being a freaking human being on this earth Mm -hmm. who deserves respect and love and kindness. And so I I think the biggest thing that I would tell people is like, just to own your own worth, to realize your own worth and to step into your own worth. Because it's one thing for us all to say like, you know, I'm worth it. I, I deserve these things. But to actually feel it, to actually look in the mirror, mirror practice was a big part of my journey with my psychiatrist. So it's something that, I mean, if anybody had a hidden camera, they think I'm cracking up. But like, I, I literally, Emily, check in with myself in the mirror every single day. So what does that look like? So it looks like me just taking a minute and I actually like stare into my eyes. I mm-hmm. try and look into my soul like as a person and I just check in to be like, are you okay? Are we good? Is there anything that you need that you're you, not getting? You right now? say that to yourself. I say that to myself out loud. <laughs> and again, like if you were a fly on the wall, you'd be like, "Okay, he needs to be reassessed and checked back into a mental <laughs> institution." But, but in all jokes aside, though, I I believe it's what's keeping me afloat. Yeah. So long because I know that, like, like for example, there's days. So when I had my lung surgery, they displaced my sternum. So when my sternum was healing, it didn't heal correctly. It's supposed to heal back. Like no one's going to see this because they're going to just be hearing us, but it's supposed to grow back a certain way. And mine basically grew back uh, in a very dangerous, painful way. So like every now and then, even though they've had to go in and put a plate in since my lung transplant to fix it, there are days when like, I wish I could grab those narcotics and like Mm -hmm. just numb that pain. But those days, that daily ritual of checking in with myself is like, are we good? Is there anything you need that you're not getting? Is there anything that you can do to make this better? Is there anybody who you can reach out to instead of keeping this to yourself? So it's like little things like that that I would just tell people. And the other big thing for me is find your person. Yes. I believe we all have people in our lives for a reason. And I believe that there's someone in our lives who is able emotionally and mentally to deal with our baggage and our garbage. Mm -hmm. So find that person that you can vent to wholeheartedly and be 100% authentic with because it wasn't until I found that person for myself that I was really able to like grow. Mm -hmm. And when I was able to do that, I just had a steady confidant then. I I knew that I wasn't in this alone. Mm-hmm. because anybody who's grown up with any kinds of traumas, you do adapt a victim mentality. And that's how you escape it is by leaning on other people to help you get through those hard times. Mm-hmm. So like I would say, find somebody who you really feel comfortable with, who you know has your best interests at heart, who you know mm-hmm. has your back no matter what. Mm-hmm. And just be your authentic self with that person. Who's that person for you? That person for me is my mom. Oh. 
your relationship is so beautiful. You know, I had a, a psychiatrist tell me once um, that I need to I need to take care of Emily. Like, yeah. like I was, she's like, think of yourself as like a child that needs to be cared for. She's like, like you need yeah. to hug yourself in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Care for yeah. Emily. Talk to her with love. Yeah. Like, yeah. be yeah. so gentle with her. And it's kind of the same thing, you know? Yeah. And another thing that, um, cause years ago I had really bad panic attacks. This was before yeah. Julia was, um, when Julia was still here and she was always my best friend and I was in Australia yeah. at the time. And I had a psychiatrist that would say to me, carry a photo with you of someone that makes you feel safe. So I used to have a photo of Julia with me and I would take it out if I would start to panic and I would look at it and it would totally calm me down. So it was kind of yeah. that safety person. Yeah. 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 Keeping them with me because it was ultimately my safety person. Yeah. But, um, well, my mom has always been my safety place, right? Like she's always been my safety net where I could fall and know no matter what, all the things I've done wrong in my life, well, what I consider done wrong, I look back on now as blessings because you learn so much from, from falls. But, you know, my mom was the one person that no matter what I've gone through and no matter what I faced has always had my back. Wow. And I've never, ever in my life felt like a disappointment to my mom. And the only reason why I haven't is because she didn't let me. Oh, that's love. So that's why she's, she's my person. I mean, I'm grateful. I've, I have other people too. My sisters are amazing. I have really, really good best friends, you know, who have just been constant rocks through everything. But the one person that I have always been able to depend on is my mom. Mm-hmm. So now if people want to find more information about you, where can they find it? As I mentioned, I have a book coming out in the spring. Um, it's called Hear Me Now. It's kind of a play on words. I named it that. I get people asking me all the time why I named it Hear Me Now. Because it's H-E-R. Yes. It's H-E-R-E. Mm-hmm. Not here as in here with your ears. It's here.me.now. And the reason why I named it that is because here in the present for the first time in my life, Mm-hmm. Me as in me as a whole person, and now what I want my focus to be now. Oh, so it's a memoir. About, yeah, it's a memoir. It's about everything uh, that I've been through in my life. Um, I'm also a very uh, passionate interior designer. So if people want to check out my design work, they can on Facebook at Damon D A M O N James Design. And there you'll see, I'm going to start sharing some more content and tips about interior design, but that's really Same. like my greatest passion right now. Amazing. And is that where you want to go from here? Yeah, I really want to be, my first goal is to be known as Newfoundland's most uh, well-known interior designer. And then mm-hmm. I want to take Canada by, by storm. Amazing. Yeah, well, you so. are just absolutely so amazing and so inspiring. And I just thank you so much for sharing this story with us. You're so welcome, Emily. And I really appreciate you reaching out. And I hope that if anybody is listening right now, I hope that you really do take your power back and own your power because life is so precious and life is so beautiful that when we really truly own it, uh, life can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.